This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. Well, there are certain days on this radio show, you know that, uh, you know, I've got my voice. I'm at 100%, and there's some other days when I'm like at 98, 99%. We're going to take a lot of calls on today's show because uh, I've got uh, I've got something. You know, I've got the crud. I don't know what it is. But we got to start with the cruddy call on fourth down in Tucson. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State, fourth down, fake field goal. What were they thinking? Seppington, the kicker. Snaps good, hold, and it's a fake! And he's brought down inside the 10. But no time. I don't get it. I don't get it. Your kicker is your best athlete who's going to get you to the end zone? They tried it. In their last possession, but they had the penalty and they had to kick it. But it's all or nothing. You got to get to the end zone. You don't get another first down here. And that's the guy you want to try to have break tackles and get. I don't get it. There it is. I didn't get it either. Jonathan Smith, after the game, said, eh, bad idea. Ultra aggression. And that starts with me, and, and it shouldn't have been. You know, we put the fake in. We actually got it called when we took the delay earlier on the fake field goal. And uh, once we took the delay, backed it up and kicked it. And then ultra aggression, I don't exactly remember, but asking Atticus to score from 20 yards out. You know, we had the look we wanted, all of that, but it was just a bad call at the, at the time. Bad call at the time. Oregon State makes a mistake. Cost him three points right before the half. I want your phone calls. Oregon State fans, what were you thinking there? Uh, and what do you make of Jonathan Smith's decision? 503-417-7575. Also, how did you feel about it? Did you throw a pillow across your living room? I don't know. Uh, I also think uh, if you are a Oregon fan, you probably looked over at that and said, "Ah, eh, we've been through that a couple weeks ago. <laughs> like we've we've had our moment." Um, the in the end, Jonathan Smith and Oregon State had about 123 other plays in that game where they could have made a larger impact and could have won the game anyway. I don't want to put it on one call, but damn, when you have fourth down, and you are 16 yards away from the end zone, I don't want the ball in the hands of the kicker, particularly with no time on the clock, because even if you get the first down, that's it. It's touchdown or bust. I don't like a run play there. I I want the ball in the air, but I'd rather have Aiden Childs or DJ Ungalele throwing a pass there instead of the kicker. Maybe not your fastest guy, maybe not your best ball carrier trying to run the ball to the end zone. I think Jonathan Smith probably feels the same way. I'll ask him about it on Wednesday, but I'm asking you about it right now. What did you make of it? 
how big of a play was it in that Arizona loss? Comes down to a three-point loss. And, uh, you know, does, does, is that what cost Oregon State the football game? Also on the Oregon front, man, oh, man, have you seen Oregon look that dominant? So good, so complete. I don't want to get ahead of myself because it's a Utah team playing without its starting quarterback, playing without its starting running back, playing without its starting fill-in-the-blank. And Oregon did what it should do to a team like that. But, man, did I leave that game kind of looking back at the Washington loss and saying, man, is it possible that Oregon is playing its best football of the season because it refocused after the Washington loss? Bo Nix talked about that. Well, that's a really good football team. Um, I just think, you know, it speaks to how we played today. I think we just, um, you know, really played well and. Every facet of the game, every, um, you know, each group that went on the field, offense, defense, special teams, they did what they were supposed to do. And we started quickly. Uh, we kind of got the crowd out of it. And we didn't really let it be a factor. You know, the penalties we had weren't necessarily because we couldn't hear. It's just, um, again, go back, got to get better at those things. Those killed us on drives. And um, we just want to be more efficient and make sure that um, when we have a, a, a chance to go out there and close out the game, we go and do it. Yeah, well, obviously Oregon did it, closed out the game. Utah's offensive line was dominated by Oregon's front seven. Utah's defensive line was controlled by Oregon's offensive line. Bo Nix was incredibly efficient. He was as good as I have seen him. He just doesn't make mistakes. That's the thing that Bo Nix gives you. He just doesn't make a mistake. Every other quarterback in the conference, including Michael Penix Jr., makes mistakes. Bo Nix does not make mistakes, and he's got Bucky Irving and Jordan James running behind him. Uh, I think as long as Oregon can keep Bo Nix healthy, I don't see them losing. I don't see Cal getting him. I don't see USC getting him. I, you know, I, I certainly think that they. If you right now, if the if the Civil War game is played Saturday, you'd have to pick Oregon. If it was played Friday or Thursday, I'd pick Oregon. You'd have to at this point of the season. But what do you make of Oregon? I, I think they're going to end up six in the college football playoff rankings when they come out tomorrow. What do you make of them? And what could the playoff selection committee be talking about today as they're meeting right now behind closed doors? Rob Mullins, the athletic director at Oregon, gave an interview with Wilner and I this morning, and I taped it. I'm going to play you part of it. And he sort of gets into the uh, underbelly of the college football playoff system and talks about it and talks in depth about what those – participants are likely discussing right now as they talk about Oregon and Washington and Michigan and Ohio State and Georgia. We'll get that insight from Rob Mullins. Uh, Dave Bartu, the college football matrix, will be with us coming up here in about 15 minutes. Bartu's going to tell you, too, from the analytics side, where he sees, uh, you know, where he sees the top four coming out and where he sees the, uh, where he sees sort of the landscape of the, you know, the top seven or ten. We'll ask him about that. Uh, plus, I want your phone calls off the top of the show today. We usually wait a little bit. I'm not going to wait today. I want you to tell me what you made of Oregon State's loss, what you made of Oregon's win, and what you think of the playoff picture right now. Does the Pac-12 get a team in or not? 503-417-7575. We're going to go out to Bend in Central Oregon. Here's Daniel calling in. Daniel, what's on your mind? Hey, John. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Saturday broke my heart. <laughs> Oregon State fan, and uh, yeah, that call at, at going into the half, I mean, I, I'm no sports expert, but I'm sitting there on my couch picking lint out of my belly button, and I could have told you that was a terrible call. 
I appreciate that John, Jonathan Smith, you know, said at the end, you know, in his, that it was a bad call, but he he gets cute like that sometimes. He gets way too cute. It's, it's, when he did it uh, earlier in that quarter, it was also like I didn't I didn't really like it. I didn't I didn't care that he went for a touchdown. That was awesome. But you know, uh, you've got such an elite offense. Why, if you're going to go for it, go for it. I loved I, I would I would have loved that over over the fake play. It was it wasn't good. And and I have Oregon fans or Oregon friends who are Oregon fans and. Uh, you know they they were comparing it to to the Oregon game the week before, but yeah, I I don't agree. I think they at least went for it the way that you should go for it, not with a fake play. Jonathan Smith just gets too cute. He's got to be better. Yeah, yeah. It was, and here's the other thing that that I that I hated about the fake field goal. Earlier in the game, they line up for a field goal, and they were going to run it, and they ended up not being able to run it, but they totally telegraphed it. Like I saw it on television. And I'm sure that Arizona was going, watch the fake, watch the fake. It wasn't just cute. It was kind of dumb. But, you know, coaches will do dumb things. And you know, people keep asking me, you know, how does Jonathan Smith look Oregon State fans in the eye? Well, he looks him in the eye because he just won 10 games last year. And he took the program over when it was lifeless. Uh, and hopefully he learns from it. Hopefully Dan Lanning learned from what was uh, a careless and uh, reckless uh, series at the Washington uh, in, the, in the Washington loss. Uh, let's go to Roy in Portland. Roy, welcome to the program. Hey, how you doing, John? Man, I, man, I hate to see that for Oregon State. Man, I was pulling for them. You know what I mean? I wanted them to. I wanted them, you know, to have a chance, man, at the Pac-12 championship. But you know, this Arizona is a tough place to play, man. A lot of teams go in there and underestimate uh, and, and come out with a loss. In Tucson, so you know, but uh, you know, Oregon impressed me with Utah, man. But I just still go back to the fact, man. I just don't see like if your best chance is Washington to go undefeated, and then Oregon plays Washington and beats them. But if Washington loses, and then they go to the Pac-12 championship, Oregon and Washington. I mean, I I really don't think it matters who wins that game because now you got you know. Oregon, uh, Washington falls in the polls if they lose before the Pac-12 championship game. And then, you know, it's like, are you going to be able to beat enough teams now to put yourself in that top four, you know, when you got other championship games going on? You know, what if Alabama beats Georgia? I don't think it'll happen. But what if they beat Georgia, then what? Yeah, you got a problem. Georgia's still getting, Georgia's still getting in with one loss. So, I mean, I, I, I don't. You know, what about Ohio State and Michigan? What happens with that? Because I'm thinking when the first break-offs, break-ins come out, I think both Ohio State and Michigan are going to be in the top four. Yeah, we'll see. So Bartu's going to join us. Bartu's going to join us, Roy, coming up in a few minutes. And I think you're right. I think Ohio State and Michigan will be in the top four. I think Georgia's going to be in the top four. I think Washington is going to be at five. I think Florida State's going to be in the top four. I think Oregon's going to be at six. And Oregon got, I think the Pac-12 in general got some help over the weekend when, um, you know, Oklahoma lost. But you still have the potential here for, you know, Ohio State and Michigan, one of those should be eliminated when they play. But you have the potential here for undefeated Florida State to uh, have a uh, have an argument for being in the top four. You have a potential for the SEC champion getting in there, and you hope it's Georgia. Uh, that way it's not messy. But, you know, I think a one-loss Oregon or in undefeated Washington, 
are your best opportunities, obviously, to get teams in. I don't think USC can get into the uh, college football playoff Final Four, even if USC runs the table from here out. Let's go to Mark in Portland. Dave Bartu will tell us more about it coming up. Uh, go ahead, Mark. You're on. Yeah, Roy's describing the, the, the old BCS where Oklahoma and Texas would be a factor, but they, they've pretty much eliminated themselves, John, because the committee, even though it's still a joke and it's not a real playoff, it's a lot fairer than the old BCS was. How stupid does it even sound listening to that where if, if Michigan and Ohio State, the loser, is going to get in the playoff and, and Alabama and the Georgia – Whereas Oregon and Washington, they have to win that game to get in to the playoff, but these other teams don't have to win their conference. It's absolutely ludicrous. That's why I can't wait till next year. That's number one. Number two, I mean, I think I think uh, Oregon's in if they win out. That is an interesting scenario with Georgia losing to Alabama because that that would that would probably create a chance for them to get shafted. But it's just ludicrous to me that the winner of this conference are obviously the deepest and toughest conference in the nation this year. Their low-tier teams are not sure wins. Arizona State, Colorado might be the worst team in the conference. They could end up 1-8. and eight. So, And Oregon State, uh, I don't know what Jonathan Smith was doing there, but I just think the Beavers, they, if they could show as much hatred and, and passion and focus as they do to beat the Oregon Ducks each week. Each game has to be a Super Bowl when you're a top 15 team in the country. Alabama, Georgia, Michigan, Ohio State, those teams have to be ready every week. And Oregon State got a taste of what it's like to be close to the top 10. You have to be ready every single week. They have no excuse to me to lose to teams like Washington State and Arizona. I just don't get it. They're way better teams than those two teams. Yeah, and and I and I I agree with you on the bottom of the conference. There aren't easy outs. I would even say Colorado's not an easy out because they can score some points. I think they're just really beat up, and there's obviously a fracture in that locker room now. And you can tell that you know they're not playing with a lot of unity. But Stanford is not an easy out, as Washington found. Arizona State is playing people tough. Um, you can see that happening. Um, you know, I think uh, I think the Pac-12 has got. The metrics and has uh, the reputation, but I'll ask Dave Bartu, the college football uh, matrix, when he comes on here in a few minutes. You know about that conundrum. Um, is it possible that a one-loss conference champion in the Pac-12 could get nudged out by uh, a second SEC team or a second Big Ten team? Uh, we'll talk to him about that. Bruce is in Portland. Go ahead, Bruce. Hey, John. I, I don't think there's any way a one-loss. Pac-12 conference champ gets nudged out, especially if it's Oregon or Washington. Um, they're, they've both been playing well all season. Uh, and the Ducks, I have, I've been watching the Ducks for a long, long time, and I have not seen them play that well as they did against Utah for four quarters um, and a, forever. I mean, they came out fast and they finished strong, which is always good to see, and they're healthy, um, which is huge. The Oregon State play, I mean, I'm a Duck fan through and through, but I still root for Oregon State when they're not playing each other. Man, that, that field goal, fake field goal, you're just left shaking your head. But they couldn't stop Arizona. They still had a chance at the end of that game. Arizona ran it, I think, on 10 straight plays. It was it reminded me of the Civil War yeah. last year. Yep. You know, Oregon State couldn't stop their run. Um, it, it was just, they, they that one play did not cost them the game, but it sure didn't make it any easier for them. Um, we'll see what happens. Everybody 
still needs to stay focused here. And John, I got one question. What did you end up dressing up as for your kid's Halloween party? At school? Yeah, yeah, good one. Because my whole aim there, Bruce, was to to not have a costume that I had to explain to other people. And for people who don't know, the old barn blast was on Friday night at our kid's elementary school. It was a big deal to the kids. They wanted me to go, and so I had to fly at 5.45 in the morning on Saturday morning to Salt Lake City. It's probably why I'm sick. Uh, 5.45 in the morning, Saturday morning. I was at the airport at O-Dark 30. Um, you'd think nobody else is there, but there was a line at security and all that. Uh, thank goodness for TSA Pre. Um, and I, uh, I ended up on Friday night going to the, uh, to the Halloween party dressed as, uh, I wasn't Harry Potter, but I was in, in one of the, uh, what's the house, Stephen, that Harry Potter belongs to? Uh, Do you know it? Uh, no, I, I don't know. Gryffindor? Gryffindor? That sounds sound right? Sounds, I don't know. I, that sounds right. Yeah, I don't know. I had one of those robes and I had on the tie. And so I, people were looking at me, they're going, are you Harry Potter? I was like, my whole thing is I don't want to have to talk about my costume. I'm not Harry Potter. I'm just one of the extras. I'm, I'm one of, and, and the funny thing about the elementary school was there was about 50 kids that were dressed up as Harry Potter. So I wanted to get them all around and take a photo, but I thought it might be a little creepy, too. Stephen, um, give me an idea. Oregon State, fake field goal. Dan Lanning, his decisions in the Washington game. Which one of those two things was the worst look? It's all Oregon State and the, and the fake field goal. You know, I, I was a fan of the Dan Lanning stuff, but even if you're not a fan of the Dan Lanning fourth down going forward against Washington, you can hear arguments and you can hear it out. And you can be like, okay, that, it kind of made sense. To run a fake field goal with your kicker from sixteen, you know, from the 16-yard line and, and there's not enough time to call a timeout, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. And it's so weird that Jonathan Smith made this kind of mistake because he hasn't made these type of mistakes before in the past and in his history. Is, we talked about this all last week, John. It, does Oregon State understand the stakes of this game? And I think that play proved that they didn't understand the stakes of this game. That's a play that you run when you're 1-6 and six and you're in Boulder, you're playing Colorado, and you're trying to get your first Pac-12 win as a head coach when you're Jonathan Smith. That's not a play you run when you're the number 11 team in the nation. You're 6-1. You're looking to get to the college football playoff. Not the Pac-12 title game, the college football playoff by winning. You're trying to get to nine, go be 9-1 and and take on Washington and Oregon in those last two games of the season. This isn't a play call like that. You, you don't run that fake field goal in that situation. It just screamed of inexperience as a head coach of Jonathan Smith, and it's unfortunate because Jonathan Smith has been so good for his entire career at Oregon State, and he made a terrible mistake in this game that really cost the Beavers you know, probably a chance to get to Vegas, definitely a chance to make calls for a playoff, but probably a chance to go to Vegas. It was, just, it was mind-blowing that that decision yeah. was made, and it just screamed. We don't know what the stakes are right now. We're playing like we're the underdog. I didn't mind a fake field goal, but I mind it with three seconds left, and I mind it at the distance they were. You know, it, you're inside the red zone. It's automatic points. Like, I, you know, I don't mind like, hey, you got a long field goal, and there's four minutes to go in the half, and you can convert the first down, and maybe it's, a, maybe it's just fourth down and five. You know, I, the kicker can get that. But I think you were asking too much of the kicker. The kid, kid I, I immediately started researching the kicker, and the kicker played soccer at Central Catholic. He's obviously not a bad athlete, but he also is not your best option in that scenario. Right. 
with it's three, just weird. With three seconds, you can't make that decision. And and Smith made it sound like, well, we had this in the holster, so we had to run it. Like he he just wasn't gonna take no for an answer. And for me, like that's just is inexcusable. Like this loss is on Jonathan Smith. I love Jonathan Smith. I think he's the right coach for Oregon State. But man, I, I put everything on him on this loss. That type of decision cannot be made in a game like this. When you're trying to be a really elite team, this looks like just a team that wasn't prepared for what what was going on in the situation. He does have a history of fake punt, fake, you know, running things fourth down and short trick plays. He's got a history of that. And I don't mind some of that. But I agree I agree with you and your take here because he wasn't doing that stuff, fake punting and such, when he was a top fifteen team. You're now in the top fifteen. You're on the road. You have a chance to take a thirteen ten lead into into halftime into the locker room. You've already telegraphed fake. There's three seconds left. I don't care if you can block this. Situationally, somebody should have been in his ear saying, "No, coach, is a mistake. Let's take the points. I don't like this. I don't like you know. Uh, never mind if the look is there. You know, I hear that over and over from coaches. Oh, the look was there. I don't care if the look was there." Uh, you got to make the right situational call. All right, Dave Bartu, the college football matrix is coming up. I'm going to start with him by talking about all these coaches who go on fourth down. What are they doing? Are they playing the numbers right? Dave Bartu has crunched it. He dabbles in the dark arts, so to speak, when it comes to analytics. We're also going to talk to him about the playoff selection committee. What in the world are they thinking about, and what are they going to come up with? Bartu accurately predicts. The college football playoff rankings top to bottom every year. He's going to tell us what to expect tomorrow when the rankings are released. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, the first set of college football playoff rankings are going to come out Tuesday, tomorrow. We'll be talking about this on tomorrow's show. Also, you'll hear part of my interview with Rob Mullins, the Oregon Athletic Director, later in the show at 4 o'clock, where he talks about all the data that they are privy to when they're sitting in the room as part of the selection committee. He really uh, takes a deep dive on what it is to be in that room and the debate that's going on in the room. But one of the guys who has accurately predicted the college football playoff rankings year by year Top to bottom, all the time, never wrong, Dave Bartu, who is known as the college football matrix. Matrix Analytical is a staffing. They, they basically do data and analytics that help universities with their staffing. But he dabbles in what he calls the dark arts, looking at the playoff rankings, looking at coaches going for it on fourth down. And Dave Bartu is joining us now to talk all about that. Let's start with the dark arts. Fourth downs. All these coaches, they're all gunslingers. They're going for it on fourth down. Are, are, are they making sense to you from an analytics standpoint? No. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it, hasn't, uh, it hasn't for a long time. And, I, and I've been following, actually, the, the first time I start following, started following going for it on fourth down in the red zone, John, you were there. You were there. It was first and goal. It was first and goal, and Barner didn't make it. It was second goal. <laughs> Darren Thomas didn't make it, and it was third and goal, and didn't make it. And it was fourth and one. Went for it again. And what did Oregon lose that championship by? 22-19? Lost by three? Yeah. And I have been glued to fourth down conversions since that game. 
I was thinking about it because we, we flew out of Las Vegas. We had to drive from Phoenix to Vegas. And it's one of the things I thought about the whole way is how am I going to look up this data? How am I going to break it down? And this, this is not, not to get into it too deep, but it's a very complex decision, in my opinion. Because when you go into a game, you have to understand the strength of your offense versus the strength of their defense because it changes outcome, right? The better offense against a worse defense is going to have a better fourth down outcome, okay? But then you also have to understand how good is the offense going the other way if you fail versus your defense. And that changes game by game. There's no – these people say, oh, the book says this. Really, the book tells you how to do Oregon and Washington – but it's the same number when Oregon's playing Colorado. That doesn't make any sense. It's constantly changing. But for fans out there, here is my universal rule of thumb for any NFL or college football. But We're talking college football, so it's even worse in the NFL. But here's your rule of thumb. If it's fourth and three or more and there is no time – and there is no, no score pressure. So if it's first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, okay, I get it if you're down 11 and there's six minutes to go in the fourth quarter. There are certain things you just have to go for, right, regardless of the numbers, all right? But if it's first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, and it is fourth and three or more, you don't do a dang thing. I don't care where it is. 40-yard line, plus minus 40-yard line, 35, you punt it away. You get rid of it. Your conversion rate is not that good. In fact, so far this year, fourth and three or more, the conversion rate in college football is 41%. Not even close to 50-50. It's 41% on fourth and three or more. Last week, it was 31%. You know, and, and that's the other thing. As the season goes on, going forward on fourth down actually gets worse because these teams have prepared for it all year. So not only does it change game by game, it changes week by week. You know, so it's it's complex, but when I see anybody going for it at fourth and three or more, I cringe. And when they do it in the red zone, I double cringe because teams that have gone for it in the red zone in the last 18 weeks, so since the beginning of 2022, they are six games under 500 when the game finishes three points or less. Just don't do it. It's like going to the ATM at the casino, isn't it? It, it's, it, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a losing proposition. It, it really is. And, and back to your question, why do these guys do it? I, I think I, they, just, they just have a, a confidence that they're going to get it done, right? And I think sometimes coaches will do it. Now, here, this is an interesting insight that I've found in my work with coaching staffs, is one of the things that they'll do the week before the game is when they're watching film, John, they're looking for an opportunity, a, a, a defensive uh, scheme, a, a, a punt or a uh, field goal or, or something where it says, hey, here's, we see this weakness, and if we see this weakness, we're going to go for it. Okay? And that's cool. They spend a lot of time trying to find a weakness to take advantage of it. But here's the problem is they get so caught up in determining when they're going to go for it, they never talk about when they shouldn't. Okay? And so a really good example of this, a couple of years ago, one of the clients, they, they went for an onside kick. And I said, why did you do that? They, you, you just scored a touchdown. You just took the lead. This offense is killing you all game. And you, you went for a kill shot at the beginning of the third quarter, and you gave them the ball on the, with a short field. Boom, scored a touchdown, never let again. 
Okay, it was over. And what they what they said was exactly what I told you is they saw in film there was a weakness in kickoff coverage, and they were determined that if they saw that lineup out there when they saw the formation, they were going to go for the onside kick, and they never thought about this offense being that good because the offense they were facing the previous year was trash, but it was hot against them. There was no devil's advocate to go coach. This is a tie ball game. We weren't expecting this. We should, when should we not do this? They plan so much when they should, they don't plan when they shouldn't. And I think that's really where they get caught up in going for it in certain situations is they plan to make it happen, but they don't make a plan when they shouldn't do it, John. And I think that's the real big difference that I see out there. Let me ask you this, because you mentioned, you know, you don't like those, you don't like the fact that they're in the red zone. You don't like that there's a time pressure there. Does mm-hmm. the does being home or away matter? I just got to pepper you with a variety of different angles, like home oh, or away. Like, is there home does, field advantage? Yeah. Does it does it does it change your thinking? Hey, we got a chance to take a lead on the road going into halftime, kick the field goal, or does or is home away just uh, negligible? Uh, you know, home home away. I don't think I don't think home and away is is that important. Okay. Okay. I really, I, I really, do, I really don't. You look at false starts; they're almost fifty-fifty across the board. So, so home, home and road false starts. There's, there's no, there's nothing there. I think, I think they get caught up in that they have to go for it, right? Oh, I'm the underdog. I got, right. I got to go for it. What I need you to read, John. I'll send you a copy of it. I only give it to our coaches, but I'll get you a copy of it. It's and I update it every year. It's called and and we use the numbers for it. It's called the anatomy of an upset. Anatomy of an upset. You know, basically, we just break down all the upsets. And I'll tell you one thing, is making things happen against the numbers, that's yeah. not how you pull an upset. You pull an upset by playing really good, error-free football and letting the other team fall apart. Yeah, you mentioned that after the Washington-Oregon game, is that Dan Lanning trying to manufacture a seven when the three is right in front of his face is mm-hmm. part of the anatomy of an upset. Like, you know, you're forcing yourself into a, into a bad situation. Right, you're you're going against the numbers. Now, I don't think Dan cares about the numbers. I could I he, I could stand in front of him and say, "Hey, Dan, here's the numbers." Right here, here's what college football looks like. I think he's trying to build a culture of this is what we are going to do. We are going to be fearless on fourth down. I don't care what the numbers say. This is what our culture is going to be. We're going to be aggressive and we're going to be fearless. Now, I could say, "Hey, you're going to lose more games and you're going to win because of it," but I think it's just a cultural trait he wants. It has nothing to do with the numbers whatsoever. It's just the culture he wants to build in Eugene. And that's cool. I just look at it from a number standpoint and say, you keep doing it. Well, I mean, he's done it three times now. You know, we've gone for fourth and three more and more three times in which the game finished less three points or less apart. I mean, there's no other head coach in college football that has more than one of those in the last year and a half. So uh, he's, he's going he's gonna to get those back. But he's already three games behind. It's a lot to catch up on. I don't think he'll ever catch up on that um, based on the numbers. All right. You, you always hear people say field goals don't win games. you agree with that? <laughs> Dude, is a scoreboard? Points win games. Points <laughs> win games. Oh, my, 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 what's one of my favorites? I, I, didn't, didn't you, you you interviewed, like, the Portland State dude, and, he, and he's like, uh, touchdown wins games. Field goals don't. Yeah. You know? And it's like, no, the most points win the football game. That's really what it comes down to. If you're playing good football, you know, over time, it, it's, it's just going to work itself out. It's more in your favor trying to be consistent than going against the numbers. I mean, think about it. If, if you're running plays that are 40% successful, 
You know, con converting a, a two-point conversion twice in a row, you know, you have about 16% odds of doing that. You, you have a 93% odds, 94% odds of converting both extra points. You know, I mean, you're, you're chasing a ghost. You're chasing numbers that aren't there. And I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if it's ego. I don't know if it's media narrative. I don't know who's pushing this stuff. Hell, ESPN, you know, their FPI says, hey, if it's fourth and four or less, you should go for it every time. Bunch of idiots to put that kind of stuff up there. But that's what fans see. And then fans breathe it into the coaches, and the coaches start believing it. I, I don't think there's a book out there. I just – I don't know what it is that causes these guys to do it, though. Dave Bartu is the college football matrix. I want to ask you about the playoff, um, uh, of course. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I talked with Rob Mullins today for a little bit. I'm going to play a little bit of that interview later in the show. But, you know, I asked him about the eye test, and he laughed, and he said, you know, he was talking about data that they get. They have this, uh, you know, access to all sorts of data. Uh, he says, we, as as a member of the committee, they got to pick and choose what data they wanted sent to them. I found that interesting because they could say, hey, I want, you know, offensive efficiency. What kind of data would you recommend if I were on the committee and I said, Bartu, give me some data that's going to help me determine who the best teams are. What kind of data would be at the top of your list? Oh, well, the first thing I'd want to know if I was on the committee is what is the most expensive steak on the menu? That's the first thing I'd be asking for because nothing I'm going to do is going to change the outcome. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. They, they have done the same thing every week for 45 straight weeks. You know. Now, to get back to your question, I would want to know scoring efficiency and margin of victory. Okay? How efficient are they when, they when the ball snaps on offense and defense? That's my favorite number. You know? So the teams that are best, at scoring per snap on offense and not allowing scoring per snap on defense, those are your best football teams, okay? Um, and then I'm going to want, you know, and it coincides with margin of victory. So I'm going to want to know that. Um, give me their recruiting ranking. Give me their recruiting ranking because better recruiters win more football games. So you have the if you're the most efficient on offense and defense and you're the better recruiter, that's who I'm going with. And I know a lot of people listening are going, that's nuts. But that's really how simple it is because the playoff committee, look, we're, we're, we can go through all the rankings that are going to happen in two days. I bet you I'll be within a half a ranking spot of every single team, and we only use seven variables. Seven. That's it. And we can even go over them. I can make everybody yeah. listening a guru on playoff ranking. But I, I wouldn't get into asking for a lot of data because most of it's just absolutely meaningless. It's all fluff to the actual result, which is actually very, very simple to navigate through. All right. We're going to go through that after the commercial break. I'm going to ask you to make us experts on uh, picking the, the teams, and we'll see if we can all pick them. And also, I want you to give us maybe your top six, top seven teams as you expect them to land uh, when the rankings are released tomorrow. Dave Bartu, the College Football Matrix. More with him after the break. Dave Bartu is the College Football Matrix. He's been kind enough to stick around. The first uh, set of rankings for the College Football Playoff will come out tomorrow. Selection Committee uh, hold up right now talking about it. Uh, Dave, you've been able to predict the outcome of these polls with great accuracy. How are you doing that? <laughs> well, Bill Hancock gave us the ranking rules day one. See, while everybody was celebrating the new playoff system, Bill went through and told everybody 
He's like, here's how we're going to rank the teams. Nobody listened. We did. We wrote it all down. Now, what he didn't give us was how much to weight these things. But he said what was important to the playoff committee. Now, Rob tells you, oh, we have access to all this data. Yeah, but the data company also tells you which ones are really important. And the ranking rules tell you what's important. So they can look at all of this stuff. I don't buy it. They can say they do the eye test. Dude, since when does any of these people have the ability to do an eye test and watch 60 hours of games to rank teams? I don't buy that either. I think that's a lot of crap too. So what you just need to look at is how many quality wins you have, how many top 25 wins do you have, and what's your margin of victory? And do you have any losses? Okay, group your teams by number of losses, and then add up quality wins and top 25 wins. You know who has the most quality wins and top 25 wins and the best strength of schedule amongst the undefeated teams? Ohio State. Here's your number one team. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's that easy. Ohio State will be number one tomorrow, and all you have to do is add up the numbers, and for the most part, it's going to be pretty accurate. You start getting into the lower end of it, you know, your, your top, you know, you're at 11 through 25, then it gets a little bit dicier, but for the most part, your top teams are going to dominate in margin of victory, top 25 wins, and quality wins. It's just that simple for them. It's really interesting that you brought up, like, you know, the piece that Hancock did not give the public because John Wilner asked Rob Mullins about that today. I'm going to play his mm-hmm. clip. But by the way, Bill Hancock subscribes to johnconsano.com and he read the piece where I quoted you last time and he reached right out to me. Uh you yeah. hit a nerve with him. You hit a nerve with him. He didn't like his formula being out being out there, but uh you know, too bad. It's out there. Uh all right, here's what Wilner asked uh, Rob Mullins, uh, along the lines of, uh, you know, what weighs more or what's weighted more? Is there any advice you could offer as to whether, you know, what matters more or less? Uh, you know, bad losses, good wins, <laughs> good wins, good losses. Or is that something that, you know, it's just up to each committee member what piece to evaluate because the fact that there's never been a two loss team in the playoff to me is pretty significant uh what any insight into kind of how to prioritize as fans are looking at the results these next few weeks yeah this is where it gets tough right you guys are you guys are uh you guys are asking the tough questions because this is this is where all the debate happens right and this is what's tough if you're not in the room to fully understand it so the answer is all the above, I know, which is a really difficult answer for people to hear and understand. But that is the beauty of the process of having 13 independent members with, uh, a, you know, again, a diverse set of a committee. It, it allows you to have that d- debate. Um, so it's probably all the above, you know, uh, good wins, you know, good losses, bad losses, um, you know, sequencing when they happen, where they happen, road, home. So all that stuff gets analyzed. And there will be times in there, you know, kind of even later in the process, where you have to go back to a game, and you might even pull up the stats from that game to really review. You might even watch it again to determine, you know, exactly what happened, how played, who was injured, what happened in the game. You know, was it a, was it a Thursday night road game? You know, so all those things get discussed. Um, but I, 
there's not a scale to put on what goes where. It's up to each individual committee member. What can what I can assure you is that it all gets discussed. Um, Rob Mullins talking there. What do you hear, Bartu? <laughs> the first thing I heard was, "Ooh, that's a tough question." Which is, <gasps> let me get my coach speak hat on, right? And then we got, "Oh, it's all equally weighted." It's all, dude. We got just that was a word salad of coach speak right there. Thursday night games. Look at the stat line. Watch the game again. Oh my gosh. Okay, everybody listening. I'm going to turn you into a committee member right now if you got a pen or pencil. Okay, quality win. Quality win is any team over 500. Top 25 wins. It's not when they played them. It's were they top 25 for the committee last week. Margin of victory. And you take away, take away, knock a team down one level for a loss. Okay, two losses is two level. And then a bad loss. All right? And a bad loss is losing to a sub-500 team. So, like, USC. C, no, uh, UNC has a, has a bad loss, North Carolina. Toledo has a bad loss. Nor, uh, and so those are two teams that were in our original top 30. I'm throwing out North Carolina and Toledo because they have a bad loss. But that's all it comes down to. You just got, all, all we do that, that I, I, I don't even actually know the weights, um, but they're all weighted differently. They have, they have different amount of weight to them, but – our formula is, look, our formula is so good. We can go through any number of teams you want right now, John. And if you have your list, I will take your list versus my seven variables, and whoever's off more has to drink that many shots, okay, before we go on next week. <laughs> All right? So, so if I beat you by seven ranking points, you got to do seven shots before before our next segment. All right? I'm going to pass on that. All right. But let me, okay. So you have Ohio State at one. Okay. Who's it? Yes, I do. Who, who, who's it two? Okay, well, let's start with the first tier, our undefeateds, right? Yeah. Ohio State is the easy one. They're 31st in strength of schedule. And, folks, do not go out there and look at, like, stupid FPI strength of schedule or anybody else's strength of schedule. It is the playoff committee strength of schedule. Bill Hancock gave it to you, okay? And that's exactly what we use. So Ohio State, of the top five teams, they're at 31, okay? Florida State is at 53 Florida State is our number two team. They got three quality wins. They lost two last week because two teams they beat lost over the weekend. So they took a step back. They were number one in our on our numbers last week, and they have two uh, they have two top twenty five wins. So they're number two. Number three, eighty eight strength of schedule, four quality wins, zero top twenty five wins. They ain't played nobody. That would be Michigan, but Michigan's margin of victory is number one in the country. So that bumps them up to three over Georgia and Washington. Now, those last two, it's up to you to pick, right? It could be Washington. It could be Georgia. Washington's strength of schedule is 104. Georgia's 108. Washington has two quality wins. Georgia has two quality wins. The difference really is Washington has one top 25 win, beating Oregon at home. Georgia has no top 25 wins. Georgia has two quality wins. They've really not played anybody. Georgia's margin of victory is better than Washington. So I think the committee might sneak Georgia in at four just because they think it's a stronger team. It's yeah. kind of a false projection. I think Washington and Georgia are four and a half. If you if you put them both at four and a half, I think you're going to get that, that. That's where those two are going to be, at least in your five undefeateds at the top of the list. It, where is Oregon on your list? Do they, do they creep up to six? 
No, 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 God, no, God, no, dude. They haven't played nobody. Uh, their 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 strength of schedule is eighty four. They got two quality wins. Their non conference their non conference is really hurting them. Like we talked about, Washington. They just beat the pants terrible. off of Utah. You can't say they didn't play nobody. Okay, they 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 didn't they didn't play the schedule above, like the guys above them. Okay, right. Texas has four quality wins. Oregon has two. Texas has two top twenty five wins. Alabama has two top twenty five wins. They have three quality wins. So it's Texas at six, Alabama at seven. Now Oklahoma and and Ole Miss eight nine could be eight nine. Now now Oregon they could sneak them up because if they believe Oregon's going to beat Washington in a rematch, they'll push Oregon as high as eight maybe right above or below Oklahoma. Ole Miss has very similar numbers to Oklahoma, but Ole Miss really doesn't factor into the championship race because they have to win out. they got to beat A&M and Georgia back-to-back, and Alabama has to lose two out of the next four. Not going to happen because Alabama is going to win the SEC title. So I don't think Ole Miss is going to get the treatment somebody else might get. We do have Oregon right there uh, below those guys at number 10, I think that Ole Miss, Oklahoma, Oregon at eight, nine, ten is going to be funky. But I'm I'm pretty keyed into Texas at six, Alabama at seven. Dave Bartu is the college football matrix. I love this man. I love that you're geeking out on it. Where can people find out more about you? Obviously, they can follow you on Twitter at uh, CFB Matrix uh, on Twitter. Uh, you hear him on the show, obviously. But Dave, where else can they find you? No, well, I mean, they could buy me at any McMinimums. If you buy me a beer, because a lot of people may not realize it, I'm right. I'm in Forest Grove, Oregon. I'm right in y'all's backyard. You know, if somebody wants to buy me a beer, I will tell you all the college football stories I can't even tell on the air. You just got to put your phone away. Um, but, uh, no, so CFB Matrix on Twitter. My DMs are always open. You can hit me on my text line, 971-217-8419. Bill Hancock, you can call me, too, if you want to talk about it. That's the same number that he, he You know what he was mad about? You, you know what Pat what? Hancock was mad about? He was mad about the headline, because on the headline, I had said, lies, damned lies, and the college football playoff. Meaning, I was playing <laughs> off, of, I was playing off of lies, damn lies, and statistics. And he oh, got mad because sure. he he thought I was calling the playoff a lie. No, it's it's not. Actually, the playoff <laughs> committee is is remarkably consistent. I think that's the biggest right. misnomer. Is everybody thinks yeah. it changes, right. and it I, hasn't changed. We got to roll. We got to roll. Oh, You're the best. You're the best. Thank you, Love man. You. Dave Bartu, always great. Good stuff from Bartu. You're gonna hear more from Rob Mullins coming up. Leave it right here. Well, my Monday mailbag is out. Every Monday, I take questions from readers at johnconzano.com. And one of the questions in the mailbag was for Chip Kelly. And the question was, how does it? how is it that Chip Kelly sleeps so well on a plane? How is it that he sleeps so well on a plane? Well, I reached out to Chip Kelly today. And I said, hey, in my mailbag, reader wants to know how come or how easy is it for you to sleep on a plane? Because Chip Kelly is said he sleeps like a baby on a plane and uh, this is the kind of hard-hitting deep dive stuff that I uh, that I get into in the mailbag but I always when people ask questions I don't just kind of riff off the top of my head like I don't know the answer to that question so I have to reach out to Chip Kelly which I did this morning and Chip Kelly got right back to me with the answer and then three hours later He followed up with more. He was thinking about it. 
in that three in that three hours. Like, what else could I tell these good readers? And so I have that answer in the mailbag. If you subscribe at johnconzano.com, you got it. If you want to see it, just go there. And uh, it's one of it's like the third question in Chip Kelly telling people what advice he might provide for the rest of us. I also took a deep dive on the Pac-2 scheduling plan, how Oregon and Washington's move to the Big Ten will impact football kickoff times. And uh, you're going to hear a little bit of that answer from Rob Mullins, the Oregon Athletic Director, as I asked him that question in an interview that uh, will appear on Konzano and Wilner, the podcast. Uh, We uh, interviewed Rob Mullins because he's a former member of the Playoff Selection Committee. In fact, he's the former chair of the Selection Committee. And he kind of told us how the sausage is made. But the um, interview, the portion of the interview you're going to hear here, starts with me asking Rob Mullins about the contract extension that he offered Dan Lanning. He went early on Lanning. Remember, Lanning is just coming off a 10-win season, just entering season two. He's one year into his initial deal, and Oregon did a unthinkable thing. It extended his contract early. Maybe it was a precursor. Maybe they knew they were going to the Big Ten. Maybe they knew they needed him locked up. Maybe they were talking with him about it, and he said, hey, I need that job security if we're going to go into the Big Ten. I don't know. But I asked Rob Mullins, what did he see in Dan Lanning that made him want to extend him early? The interview starts with that. You're going to hear John Wilner and I peppering Rob Mullins, the Oregon Athletic Director, here. Well, obviously, when we identified Dan, uh, you know, as the next head coach at the University of Oregon, um, you know, we, we knew the DNA. Um, but what we quickly learned when he got here um, is he's wise uh, beyond his years um, in the way that he approached modern college athletics, modern college football. Um, you know, he's kind of been a student of the game in every way possible up to and including, you know, how does the transfer portal work? How does name, image, likeness work? Um, But the biggest piece for us that started day one when he arrived here in Eugene is his understanding of connection, his understanding of how to build a culture and an environment for everybody to be successful. Um, Obviously, the X's and O's are there. Um, but the piece that you know that became evident on what was going to be kind of that extra one percent, or all the things that he does to connect the student athletes, to connect the staff, um, to give you that you know, that extra advantage, uh, that separator, if you will, um, and you know when it, whether it's his get real sessions. Um, or the way that he handles any type of issue, uh, the communication is next level. And so for us, uh, you know, we saw the foundation that was being built. We've seen the leadership. We know the person. Um, and we think there's an opportunity long term to, to really take this place somewhere special. Rob, I'm fascinated by the broader piece to that of how schools are handling coaching contracts. You know, because it seems like the marketplace obviously is pushing salaries up. Uh, it doesn't. It feels like agents have more leverage than ever. How do you view that whole dynamic between school? You know, as you are, are the representative of Oregon in the negotiations with Dan uh, or any other coach. How do you view the dynamic, the shifting dynamic of school for agent, coach, and marketplace? Yeah, no, you're 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 exactly right. It is difficult, uh, no doubt. Um, and whether you agree or don't agree, 
with the structure. You have to understand that you know it is a marketplace, um, and you know, a lot of this is marketplace driven. So you know when you're doing an assessment um, on where you know if you're in that market is you know where do we fit in the marketplace? What works at our institution? Um, and it varies institution to institution. Again, whether you agree or disagree with the market, you have to determine who you want to be, where you want to be, and how do you make that fit with who you are. Uh, so, you know, you have to look at yourself first, uh, then, then, you know, evaluate the landscape and say, where do we fit, how do we fit, um, and then go about trying to find, you know, the right leader, um, and then do a contract that's representative of, you know, where you fit in the marketplace. How much of getting landing locked in long-term had to do with, you know, you'd just been through Mario Cristobal, Willie Taggart, Mark Helfrich, and, uh, you know, Justin Herbert, I think, had three different head coaches in, in, in trying to get things settled down. How much was that important to you and maybe just the continuity uh, of the program? Yeah, continuity is one piece. Obviously, you know, we had a series of succession plans from Brooks to Bellotti to Chip to Helfrich, and, you know, that served the program well for a long, long time. Um, but, yes, and then we had, uh, and, you know, each of those coaches had their own set of successes. Um, but there is some advantage to continuity. That was just one, one piece of it. Uh, again, I'll reiterate the things that I said earlier. You know, the real key pieces were, you know, his approach, his work ethic, his leadership, you know, the match of the values. You know, when all those things align, um, and, again, we have the benefit of seeing what happens around here every day uh, and the leadership and the culture and the approach. Um, but continuity was one piece of it for sure. Rob, how much time are you spending or your staff spending on, on Big Ten transition stuff these days? Uh, we are spending some time on it. I, I don't know that I could put – I mean, obviously our focus is finishing as strong members of the Pac-12. Um, we're in that crazy part of our year where you have the fall sports winding down, the winter sports cranking up. Um, so that's kind of our focus now. You know, we have a top – seven volleyball team uh, we're heading into cross-country postseason so that's taken a lot uh, in addition to football but we are uh, working mostly on you know what you know what scheduling going to look like how are we going to uh, make sure that we have minimal impact on our student athletes uh, on the 10 sports that will play a big 10 regular schedule so um, yeah we're spending some time on it but we're spending more time on making sure that we finish strong in the pac-12 yeah, it's a tough dynamic, right? Because you you got to make sure your student athletes have the best possible experience this year, but also you got to make sure that your student athletes have the best possible experience next year. Exactly right. I mean, that's our number one priority, right, is the student athlete experience. But you know, obviously, it's a shorter runway than usual um, when you're transitioning um, uh, to a new league. So, uh, absolutely, we're we're trying to play catch up on that front in, in a few ways. You know, your fans keep asking me about TV times in the Big Ten and, you know, how often you might play at night or on a Friday. Um, I don't think they brought you into that conference to put you uh, playing at dark all the time, but what, what sense do you have of what that balance will be? Yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly. Uh, I mean, I do know when you look at the TV deals, um, you know, they do have some Friday night games. Uh, you know, we'll play, at Friday, we'll play Friday this year against Oregon State. Uh, so there will be uh, some occasional Friday games. But I do know this. When you look at they're going to have games on Fox, CBS, 
uh, and NBC, um, you know, that really opens up an incredible lineup on Saturdays across the whole country on network TV. So I don't know exactly, John, although I do know uh, that the majority of the windows are outstanding windows with an incredible reach. Rob, we could probably spend three hours here talking to you about, about this stuff, but one of the key things I think is on fans' minds right now is the Pac-12 and the playoff situation coming up, right? And this is the first week of the rankings for this season, and you were the selection committee chair. You served on the committee for, what, four years total, I think? Uh I, I can't think of anybody who has more insight into the process. And, and that's, to me, that is, is something I really wanted to, to get into you with here. Uh, and without getting into the specific rankings that are coming out this week, is there anything you could tell folks based on your experience that they don't know or maybe they don't realize is going on in the room on a weekly basis uh, with the committee members that that will help people, it'll help people navigate this next month because for the Pac-12, right, this is going to be a month like fans haven't had in a long time where multiple teams are going to be very relevant in the committee's discussions. Yeah, uh, so I, I mean, there's several things, uh, and I love talking about this too because I think it's been uh, so well done, uh, and I think that's the first point, right? Uh, you know, when when the CFP was created and the playoff was created, there was a lot of thought that went into the protocols um, and into the process. So, you know, and again, when you meet as a committee, you're reminded of that every single meeting that you attend. Um, So there, you know, there is a set of guidelines, if you will, uh, that are very, very helpful. Uh, The other thing that's really, uh, you know, somewhat unique, but also helpful is you've got 13 independent people in there, and it ranges from sitting ADs to former players to former coaches to former media members. So you get a real diverse set of opinions, and that's really great for the dialogue, you know, so that you get a lot of conversation and debate. Uh, The committee gives you every tool to come in there fully prepared. And as a committee member, you better be fully prepared because everyone commits a significant amount of time and energy and preparation uh, before the meeting starts because they understand the importance of one ranking spot, the importance of college football to all of college athletics. Now, once you're in the room, I think the thing, if anybody, you know, has been through one of the mock selection process, I think the thing, you know, there's great technology, there's great data, but, you know, when you're in the room, they break it down to scale to allow deeper debate on a smaller group of teams. So, for example, when they're in the room today, this afternoon, they won't be trying to rank 1 through 30. They will be looking at smaller groups to allow a deeper dive. So, they'll, you know, I'll just give you an example of the way the process works. On the first round, to rank the top three teams, 1, 2, and 3, you know, all the committee members will put in, you know, their rankings, one through whatever they decide today, but they will break down a group of six schools that got the most votes to spend a considerable amount of time comparing and contrasting those six schools to then rank one, two, and three. Then the three teams that are left that didn't get one, two, and three will stay in the pool, 
They'll add three more teams to have six teams to debate for rankings four, five, and six. And that'll go on all the way through the top 25. So I don't know. Uh, I, I think it's helpful to understand that when you take that deep dive, you are doing it in a smaller scale, and the data and schedule and results are all on a board for everybody to discuss and debate. And all 13 members are having that conversation. So uh, I think that's probably the piece that, you know, the public may not fully understand of how the scale is broken down to make sure that you take a deep dive. We hear all the time about the eye test. Do they pass the eye <laughs> test? All that. But then when you look at the criteria, you really start looking at conference championships, quality wins, uh, top 25 wins, um, you know, and then also you have, what, 50 hours of games that the, the committee is charged with kind of paying attention to. Can you help us understand sort of the stress involved in trying to gather all of that? You say tools that are available. Can you dive into that a little bit more and what you had at your fingertips while you were on the committee or as the chair? Right, so great question, because I think that's an important piece, too. Uh, one is, so you have access to a you know, sports analytics database, and you, the committee member, can decide you know, what data points are important to you. So I had a specific set that I would get you know, kind of uh, downloaded, uh, sorted, uh, and able to review, um, and you don't, you know, you have, it has to be manageable, right? You also get an understanding uh, from the data analytics company what statistics correlate to the highest level of success. But again, it's up to you, each committee member, to use the data that you want. Um, so that's what I'm talking about when you have resources. The other resource that you have, you know, they have a way to record games in multiple formats. So if you want a TV copy, or if you're a coach and you want the all 22, you can do that, and they cut out the commercials. Sorry, advertisers. But it enables you to just click play to play to play to play, so there's an efficient way to watch games. There is considerable stress in just, you know, just from a time management standpoint to get all this done before you start meeting on Monday afternoon. Um, but they do give you the tools to try to be efficient about it so that you can watch it. The first week is tougher, obviously, because the pool is bigger for teams that could be in that top 25. Uh, and obviously, as we play more games, it starts to narrow, so you don't have to watch quite as many games. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the way they set up the structure, in fact, I miss being able to watch all those games in the format that they provide. Um, but, you know, you have whatever data you want at your fingertips, uh, and they put the games in a format that, that, that allow you to do it as efficiently as possible. Could could you share an example of at least for you maybe not the full committee uh, over your your tenure of like a really difficult situation you you had to grapple with but maybe between a couple of teams? Sure. I, I mean, when I was, I think it was my first year as chair, and I may get some of this wrong, but I do remember you know kind of the the, the grappling. We we came down to the end, and there were three teams for the fourth spot. It was Ohio State, Oklahoma, and Georgia. Um, and it was we went long, long into the night on that last ranking, uh, long into the night on those three teams, and we just kept working and working and working. We went till two or three in the morning on Saturday, got back up. We took a few hours sleep, came back in. Uh, on Sunday, knowing that we had a deadline to win the, the, 
the bracket had to be announced uh, and debated it again uh, in the morning. And if you remember, that was a year that Oklahoma had a really, really strong offense, um, but we're giving up quite a few points. Um, and then it's just, it, it, you know, there were there was a lot of data points that supported each team. Uh, in the end, I think Oklahoma ended up getting the fourth spot. Um, but that was as intense, maybe even contentious, uh, a debate that I remember in my four years. All right, that's our interview uh, with Rob Mullins, or at least a point of it. Uh, went about 40 minutes with him talking about a variety of subjects. Uh, things that jump out to me that I want to, you know, kind of debate with with uh, Stephen a little bit here, maybe some listeners. You know, the the decision to extend Dan Lanning after only one season, and, you know, it's a 10-win season, it's a Holiday Bowl season, I have to think there's a larger strategy play there in that either Oregon feared that somebody was going to come calling for Dan Lanning earlier rather than later, or it wanted to offer him the job security and an increased buyout early on at Oregon so that uh, in the event that Oregon was going to the Big Ten Conference, that Dan Lanning felt like he had some chance to exhale there and the pressure wouldn't be on him right away. Secondarily, uh, talked with Mullins a little bit about scheduling the Civil War football series. He seems open to it. He seems interested in it. I think Oregon State has some interest in it. I think Oregon State wants to ensure that it's a home-and-home series. They're not going to play just a road game at Autzen Stadium every year to help Oregon out. But uh, it sounds to me like Rob Mullins knows that there's going to be enough travel and that there's a limited number of teams that you can play in non-conference games you know, that are west of the Rockies, and that Oregon State just makes too much sense if you're going to pick up a game. Now, it may prove that that game has to be played in the first three weeks of the season. That's not ideal, but I do think there's some mutual benefit to it. I know some Oregon State fans are saying, hey, why would the Beavers want to play the Ducks? Well, I think it helps the Beavers, too, in that it gives you a huge uh, non-conference matchup that has a chance to increase your strength of schedule, and also fill up your stadium every other year. And, uh, and also, by the way, the travel for your, uh, you know, in those odd years where you're going on the road, it's a bus ride, right? It's not this big uh, expensive plane ride. So I do think there's some mutual benefit to that if you're going to play it. Stephen, what jumped out at you in just that, uh, in that segment there with Rob Mullins? Yeah, I think all the points you touched on were a little interesting there. You know, the, the Civil War stuff. I think for Oregon State, it's a good opportunity to, and you've talked about this, stay relevant, right? Like, you want to stay relevant as long as possible to get back into the Power Four, I guess, would be going forward. So I think playing Oregon does that because if you can contend with Oregon and compete with them, I think you're going to stay on the national stage. So I think it is beneficial for both teams, but Always, you know, you got to have a home and home series. I think that, that's number one for the Beavs. Um, what jumped out to me, John, when you guys were talking about the college football playoff, I'm kind of with Bartu on this. And that, like, all these people that are a part of the committee, they have so much stuff going on that there's no possible way that they can be going in and watching all this stuff and going through all the numbers and analyzing everything. I kind of think that they just get, you know, like some company, or he talked to you, know, he talked about the analytic company or the data company that gives them these stats kind of just spits out a number for him and spits out a poll and they say, yeah, that looks good. And it just, it, I don't know. It, I just don't like the whole system that we have right now with the college football playoff with the four teams, how we figure it out. So it'll be good uh, when it goes to a little bit, you know, a little bit bigger. We can just say, okay, if you win your conference, you're in the playoff. But 
that kind of jumped out to me a little bit. But it's just it's one of those things where I just I, I don't know. I just I have a hard time believing all these guys in college sports and college athletes right now, athletics right now. That I just can't take him for their word. So it, it, the college football playoff stuff was cool. Um, and you talk about Dan Lanning, the contract extension. I think you were right on with the fact that he probably felt like he wanted some security. But I also think Oregon looked at what Lanning's done on the recruiting trail and said, okay, we know this guy can recruit. You know, He was a part of the Georgia defense. We still trust that he can coach. Let's kind of lock him up and play, you know, Invest in this guy early, right before he is really big and really is getting sought after after other schools and things like that. So I think they bought a little bit early on landing, but I think they did it for good reason because they saw he can still recruit. As long as you get the recruits in there, you know, get different uh, coordinators in there, I think you can compete at the highest level. So I, I think it was a good move on all those parts. But I'm with you on the Civil War stuff. I really because I really want this to continue, right? We all want to see Oregon versus Oregon State, but. Man, if I'm the Beavs, you got to be coming to Corvallis. You can't just be going to Eugene. Can't be a one-way street there. Yeah, it has to work for both sides, and I think Oregon would want to play it because, hey, it's a uh, easy way to increase your attendance, boost your attendance, fill up your home stadium, not have to travel on a plane, um, and you know, you it, it's not like you're playing, uh, you know, a second Big Sky Conference opponent. You're getting a you're getting a quality opponent in Oregon State, well, but I, don't I think know if you, saw, yeah. you see this, John. The ACC just released their schedules for the next, yeah. you know, ten years or whatever. And you look at Stanford and Cal, man, they are traveling a ton for conference schedules. Like, I think I think we are. You know, we've talked about this, the travel portion of it. I think we're underestimating how important this travel thing is going to be. Like, you've got to stay on the West Coast for your non-conference games. So. If you can have a game where you don't have to get on a plane and you just get on the bus and you can get to co- drive to, down to Corvallis, I think that's super important. Yeah, they t- ACC took SMU and Stanford and made them annual partners with Cal. And so they those three will play each other every season. But Cal's other games, you know, as you look at 2024, um, you know, they're going to be playing Duke and Miami and Syracuse and Boston College and Clemson and North Carolina. I mean... Um, it's not a, it's not an easy trip, and that's not to mention the non-revenue generating sports, which are going to get awfully tired. I think of going and playing games in Texas, and uh, and and beyond. All right, Anna's coming into the studio. Uh, we're going to hear from Chauncey Billups, also Jonathan Smith, Kyle Shanahan, and uh, some highlights of the NFL weekend. Punch and audio is ahead. We got a whole slew of interns that work on this show. I tried to name all of the interns off on Friday, and I failed in that. I don't know if you caught that, Stephen. Friday show. I did catch that, yeah. Well, intern Kirby gave a contribution to the 5 at 5. You know how I have a hard time keeping track of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 when Anna's doing the 5 at 5? I had considered maybe uh, I should have a clicker in my hand like the attendance people have at the gates at stadiums. You need one of those umpire things. <laughs> We're an umpire. What's the count? Yeah. <laughs> two and two. My blue. It's, it's always two and two. Intern Kirby came up with something. You're going to hear it featured in uh, this five at five. Anna's got her five stories. And for those of you who are longtime listeners, you will be relieved to not hear me going, what number is it? <laughs> in this segment, at least. I present to you the five at five. The five at five. Number one. Wow, that's fancy. 
Thank you, you still have to keep track. I know. Watch what happens. <laughs> okay. Let's go, everyone. <laughs> You're hearing that for the first time right along with me. Uh, Colorado football. I, I just can't believe this. They go to UCLA. They lose the game. And some of them also lose some jewelry. The... Buffalo's players are claiming that uh, jewelry was stolen from lockers during the game against UCLA on Saturday. Uh, Deion Sanders' son, Deion Jr., was sharing those allegations in a post-game video posted on Sunday night. Uh, another player stated that he had just gotten the chain the night, the day before, and whoever snagged his stuff took it right out of the box. Uh, UCLA Athletic Department confirms that a report was filed to the Pasadena Police Department after the football game regarding items reportedly missing from the Colorado locker room. This kind of stuff's not new. It happens. It happens at high schools. It happens at community colleges. You just don't expect it to happen, like, you know, at the Rose Bowl. You know, the, the, the security there, the stadium security there should be better than most places in college football like somebody should have been responsible for making sure nobody went into that locker room or came out of that locker room who shouldn't have been in that locker room i love the reaction though from uh, a linebacker on the team jordan dominic he put on social media quote forgive and forget to whoever snuck into the locker room and stole my chain as well as my teammates chains i forgive you and wish you nothing but the best hopefully you turn your life around with whatever you get for mine, and you learn from this. It's all love, end quote. Jordan Dominic, linebacker, Colorado. Love it. Love the attitude there. Would you be as gracious? Uh, I think that's classy. I, think, I don't know that I would be that gracious, no. Number two. Yeah, that's fancy. I don't know how I feel about that on the second one. Uh, sports fans, it's a special day. Do you know what today is? It's a sports equinox day. It's a rare day. Four major professional. <laughs> Can you hear me feign my excitement for this? I'm trying to figure out how it's an equinox. Mm, I don't know. I don't really know the definition of equinox. But, I just think it's what, sounds So what fancy. is it? It's the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and NHL will all be in action today. It's the 30th time to ever happen, and it will be the only time that it occurs in this calendar year. Equinox, the time or date at which the sun crosses the celestial equator when day and night are of approximately equal length. So they're really stretching. That's a cornucopia. That's not an equinox. It's a cornucopia of sports. I learned that when I was dressing up when we were in grade school. You had to either be a pilgrim or you had to be a Native American. Oh boy. I was a Native American. I chose that side. Okay. I don't know if that's the right side or the wrong side. I chose that side. It was an easier hat to make. And we learned about the cornucopia. Okay, it's a cornucopia that was served. This is a sports cornucopia. This is not an equinox or an eclipse. Yeah. It's a cornucopia. They're really misusing the equinox term, aren't they? They, (laughs) those people. Whoever put this story out. (laughs) All right, so what do we got? We have NHL, NBA, Uh NFL, Major League Baseball, all in the same night. All in the same night. Only time it'll happen this year. Congratulations, people. Love it. Mm -hmm. Number three. Okay, it's growing on me. Uh, Ex-NHLer Adam Johnson. This is so disturbing. Mm. 
only 29 years old. He is dead after getting his neck slashed by a skate blade during a game. He was playing overseas in, uh, in an elite ice hockey league game for the Nottingham Panthers over in England. He's an ex-Pittsburgh Penguin. He was taking the puck across the blue line. An opposing player uh, kicked his skate into the air and struck Johnson Ugh. in the throat area. Oh. He was rushed off the ice and received immediate treatment, but he later died from his injuries. Oh. 29 oh. years old. I, I cannot. I, Yes. And there were thousands of people, like 8,000 people, watching this in person. Hockey players are... They're super, like, superstitious. And you will see NHL players who will wear the same gear that they wore in junior hockey, like, underneath the jersey, the pads, the undershirt. They, they wear the same stuff. Also, there's technology now where players can wear turtlenecks that have sort of a protective fabric that's around the neck. Okay, because this is not the first time something like this has happened. Yeah. In fact, last year in the NHL, you had a player who had his wrist slashed mm -hmm. by a hockey uh, skate. Now, some people have suggested that the players won't wear the turtleneck because it's hot in the arena and they have like a certain custom of wearing you know, their own T-shirt underneath that they're comfortable with. But this is group. There was 8,000 people at this game. 8,000 people had to be like told the game's over. Somebody died tonight because they got a skate across the neck, and the uh, artery in his neck apparently was harmed by the skate. It, it uh, I'm just covering my neck right now. Yeah, I know. Brutal. You know? Brutal. I uh, feel bad about that. Will this cause hockey to say to players, hey, you need to wear the turtleneck that has this uh, thicker fabric around the neck? Well, there's got to be something they could design that's more, you know, ergonomic to what they're doing that actually provides protection. I mean, or I guess they can't change the skates. Yeah, no. But maybe the helmet extends. I, I don't know. I don't know, man. It's that's a sad story. It is. Number four. I feel like I'm blasting off on a spaceship. Uh, remember our good friend Luis Rubiales, the ex-Spanish soccer president? Oh, yeah, the uh, the kissing bandit. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been banned by FIFA from all national and international soccer activities for three years after kissing Jenny Hermoso at following Spain's World Cup win in August. So he was initially benched for 90 days. Um... The FIFA was investigating the situation, and they've made their findings public. So for three years, he is not allowed to go to any football-related activities anywhere in the world. Is that enough? Three years? He just shouldn't be around it. Like, why does there have to be a time associated with it? Well, he's, he's done. He has 10 days to appeal the decision, which, given... His history, he's going to appeal it. So we'll see how that goes. Spanish kiss. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> How'd it turn the Spanish kiss into a bad thing, huh? I don't know. Do you know the difference between a Spanish kiss and a French kiss? <laughs> no, I, I don't. I actually just Googled Spanish and kiss, hoping yeah. to re read about Luis. Uh -huh. And I got 
a, a Google answer that says, a French kiss is, of course, a kiss with open lips and a probing tongue. A Spanish kiss adds some suction as the tongue oh. is withdrawn. So I don't think three years is enough after reading that. <laughs> Moving on. Number five. Oh, man. Okay. Let's hustle. Kim Kardashian skims becomes the official underwear for the NBA, the WNBA, and USA Basketball. Uh, no prouder moment for her and Adam Silver standing at a podium <laughs> announcing this with the Brooklyn Bridge in the background. Like, Adam Silver has never looked less alien than standing next to Kim Kardashian. Adam Silver, what you wearing under there? <laughs> That's... Something I didn't ever want to say on radio. There I don't know. It is. She like broke the internet with Nick Bosa sporting skims though last yeah. week. Uh, I'm all right with Bosa wearing them. I don't want to imagine Adam Silver wearing them. <laughs> That's a whole another uh, whole another conversation. All right, uh, grab a podcast of this show wherever you get it. Uh, we're going to lead you right into Monday Night Football here in Portland on 7:50. The game. We're back tomorrow with a great show and big guests. The bald faced truth is not here for a long time. Just a good time.